Well, if you would uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 5 tonight, we will be finishing off our summer series in the Psalms. And once you find Psalm chapter 5 in your Bible, I would invite for you to stand and join me for the reading of God's Word as we open our time together this evening. Psalm chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God, and let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgression, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So as we are now drawing to the close of our summer series in the Psalms for this summer, uh, one of the things you might have uh, picked up on is that uh, these Psalms that we are now looking at are representing a varying amount of representations of the book of Psalms. So Psalms, uh, unlike any other book of scripture, is arranged uh, it seems to us rather randomly with uh, psalms of what we would call lament or, or mourning, uh, psalms of joy and praise, psalms of worship to God, um, and then other genres kind of mixed in there of psalms. They're all kind of arranged randomly throughout this altar. They're not random, but to us as we're reading them, they appear often to be so. And so every summer as a church, we try to uh, take a pause from what we're reading in the New Testament. Right now we're going through Luke, and we will pick back up there again next week. But uh, what we're doing in the summer is trying to take a look at the broader counsel of God's word and specifically looking at the Psalter, uh, I think often a text that we don't normally take a look at, um, and trying to ask the question, well, what profit does this have for me as a Christian? What can I learn from this uh, today? Uh, is it still relevant to me uh, in my daily walk with the Lord? And so we've, we've been looking at a couple of Psalms uh, this summer in particular, Psalms that frame our worldview, Psalms that frame our discipleship. Uh, Psalms that help us understand how we ought to approach God in worship, how we ought to suffer, um, knowing that God is still sovereign, even, even uh, while we experience great pain in this life. And one of the genres of Psalms that we really have not taken a look at as a church uh, yet since we've been uh, doing this uh, summer series is what, uh, what are Psalms known as the imprecatory Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms. And that simply means the Psalms of cursing. Uh, it's a fancy word. It just means uh, heaping judgment or heaping wrath. Um, or cursing uh, your enemies. And these psalms get their name from their particularly uh, vivid imagery, their particularly harsh language, 
uh, on those who stand opposed to either the psalmist or to God. And while uh, they're not a large genre in the Psalter, it's not like every other psalm is an imprecatory psalm, these present what many would argue is the greatest problem in reading and, and uh, applying the psalms to our lives today because they seem strange to us, uh, probably more strange than any of the other psalms that we might read on a daily basis. Uh, for example, if you picked up Psalm 119 and you read it, uh, you would uh, almost immediately gain great devotional benefit from reading Psalm 119 because it's reflecting on uh, and glorifying God for his word and for him leading us. Uh, even Psalm 1, right? Uh, we, are, we are taught to, to love God's word, to hold fast to it, to stay away from those who are wicked. Um, but that doesn't come very close to the language of some of these psalms here. Uh, I want to particularly point out to you verse 10 again of this psalm, Psalm chapter 5 where he says, make them bear their guilt, O God, and let them fall by their own counsels, because of the abundance of their transgression cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. That language seems uh, a little on the nose uh, for David to be praying uh, against a group of people who stand um, opposed to God. And that's, that problem isn't unique. And so before we really get into Psalm 5, I want to kind of frame this uh, psalm in the context of what do we do with psalms that have this uh, cursing or this heavy language to them, how do we make sense of that, and are they still relevant for us today? So before we get to Psalm 5, and, and really studying this text in particular, I want to kind of draw the issue out a little bit more by looking at a couple of other psalms that, that contain this kind of language. The first one I'd like you to turn with me to is Psalm chapter 35. And in each of these cases, we'll just be looking at a couple of verses in the text. Psalm chapter 35. And we will be looking at verses 4 through 8. And the text reads, Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him, and let him fall into his destruction. That's one example, and I'm not going to resolve any of these immediately, just, just kind of framing the issue right now. The next one I'd like us to look at is Psalm 79. And this one uh, will be in verse 6 and 7 of Psalm 79. Psalmist writes, Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his habitation. Seems rather strange for us as New Testament believers to read language like that. But I can do one more. Uh, Psalm 137. We'll be looking at two verses in Psalm 137. And if you thought the language of the last psalm was rather harsh, Read these words with me. When the psalmist writes, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And in, in reading that language, there's little additional explaining that needs to be done to draw out the, the problem that is felt by us as readers as we come across these texts. They're not only strange, uh, they not only seem uh, distant from us, 
They also seem to present a massive problem for us if we uh, want to hold all of God's word as scripture, because it, it cannot be possible, it seems, that those words would be written by someone who loves God who, and who worships the same God that you and I worship, because this seems totally against the heart posture of God towards unbelievers. So uh, it presents not only a, a strangeness to us, but also a strangeness that can't be ignored. It's not quite like uh, if we cannot resolve which king and which timeline during the, the book of Chronicles, right? It's a bigger moral problem that is now presented, different than putting together timelines. And so what are we to do with these texts? And to frame the problem more so, I've just been reading from the Psalter. Uh, that seems to be totally contradictory to what Jesus teaches us in the New Testament when he says, uh, don't hate your enemies, uh, but I tell you to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It seems strange that uh, this could be the same language written and inspired by the Holy Spirit, that then Jesus comes to the New Testament and teaches us, also inspired allegedly by the Holy Spirit, and, and teaches us something that seems so different, so, so strangely almost separated. So there are some potential solutions that we could put to this issue. Uh, the first solution, uh, the oldest solution to this problem, is to simply uh, put away the Old Testament because it is not Christian scripture. This uh, was presented as soon as the church had a canon to deal with. People were advising the Christians who were writing in the first century and in the second century that it is good what Jesus came and taught. It is helpful. Uh, but that is certainly very different than what we read in the Jewish scriptures. And so what we should do with the Old Testament, what the Jews have access to, is we should simply uh, put that to the side. It's not, it's not at the same level of scripture uh, this, uh, this is often seen as the, the Old Testament God is vindictive, the Old Testament God is wrathful, and the Old Testament God is not the same as the New Testament God who, who's coming for in compassion, who's coming uh, to, with mercy, with forgiveness. This problem was proposed, uh, or this solution was proposed by someone who was later deemed a heretic. Uh, his name is Marcion, is uh, his name. And it's an old heresy, it's literally the first heresy that the church had to deal with. But in 2,000 years, this problem really hasn't gone away because even today, you could find teachers who are very popular, very widespread, who would call themselves evangelical Christians, who would say that the solution to the Old Testament is to separate the Old Testament from the New, to put away these texts, which are outdated, uh, morally compromising, strange, foreign to us, and we should really focus on Jesus, his teaching in the New Testament and those, those texts. So that's one solution we could, we could put forth. Another uh, possible solution, uh, this is uh, by another popular uh, author today, a very widely accepted author. He would say something to the effect of, uh, we should say that these men who wrote these psalms uh, were sinning when they wrote these psalms. And I'll, I'll read you the exact quote from that individual, um, just so you can get the thrust of what he says. He writes, we must neither try to explain them away or to yield for one moment to the idea that it becomes, that just because it becomes in scripture, that all this vindictive hatred must somehow be good and pious. We must face both facts squarely, that the hatred is there, it's festering, it's gloating, it is undisguised, and also that it would be wicked of us if in any way we condoned or approved of this language. That writer is not some fringe person, that is someone who is right in the, in the middle of what we would call orthodoxy, who writes that dealing with the problem of these verses in the Psalter. That's one solution. We could say we unhitch the whole Old Testament. We could say not the whole thing, just you know, these couple of Psalms that contain this language. We could make a, a cultural caveat for these men. 
the other solution uh, is we could begrudgingly agree. This is the, the solution of, I think, many of us today. We, we know uh, from an orthodox standpoint that we can't unhitch the Old Testament. We know that that's a, an extreme example. We know there's other good things in the Old Testament, so we don't want to do away with the whole thing. Uh, we might not have a solution to these psalms. We might not have a good answer to someone who brings, presents this psalm to us and say, well, what do you do with this? Is this a loving God? So we might say, okay, we're not going to unhitch it. We're not going to throw it away. But we begrudgingly admit that, you know, it's in Scripture. I have to accept it. But that doesn't mean I necessarily understand it or even totally uh, rejoice in it. Uh, that would be the begrudging agreement. That's another solution. I think that's probably the most common solution today to these psalms. Many of us uh, are not comfortable, like Thomas Jefferson, tearing out pages in our Bible or cutting out pages. And so, I, and I don't recommend that that is a solution. But uh, if we're not going to do that, then, and, and we're gonna, then we're going to have to actually answer the question, what are these psalms here for? And treat these psalms not like lesser scripture, like less holy scripture, like less inspired scripture. But if we truly believe this to be the very word of God, as, as we would say that we do, then we need to actually be able to answer the question appropriately, what are these psalms here for? What do they teach us? And how could someone writing in the New Testament say that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for, rebu for rebuke, for training in righteousness? Because when, when, that, when that verse was written, most of scripture was the Old Testament, uh, even larger percentage than what we would have access to today. And so these psalms were well known uh, to be there as well. And so let me propose to you another, another quote, another solution that might frame this discussion a little bit more. We must remember that we are not morally superior to the authors of Scripture. Don Green, a pastor in Cincinnati, writes that. He says, we must remember that we are in no way morally superior to the authors of Scripture. The reason we have to keep that in mind is because our tendency is to be ignorant as to how our culture has influenced us and hypercritical of how someone else's culture has influenced them. So when that comes to looking at another culture that is a strange tradition from us, for example, cannibalism, we might not have a good answer to that morally. We're not going to appeal to a moral higher authority. And many today uh, would not appeal to a moral higher authority to solve cannibalism. They would say that culture is outdated. It has, out, it has uh, traditional practices, and these are culturally inferior. It's better to have peace and not, to not eat other people. Now, we would agree that that's not a good practice, but the, we can't compare culture to culture and say that one culture is just superior because and appeal to some general moral reasoning. We have to have a, a different kind of solution to these problems. And we, we tend to, as, as New Testament uh, Christians, treat the Old Testament in a very similar light. We're very quick to uh, dismiss uh, examples of patriarchy in the text because we, we look at that and we say it's cultural and we can ignore that and we can just go ahead and move on. Uh, and not worry about it too much because clearly that's their cultural bias getting in the way. Or we might do the same uh, with the problem of polygamy in scripture, as many would do and just say, oh, that's their culture. Um, and so we can just go ahead and move on and, and not deal with it. There are solutions to these things that I'm talking about, but uh, we have to treat scripture with a higher weight than just dismissing the biblical authors as being somehow sinful or compromised in their writing. Because as soon as we start to say, well, that's their culture and this is God's scripture, and we start cutting up the Old Testament like that, without any consistent criteria, what you're going to find very quickly is you're doing that based on your opinion of what you think is or isn't good. And then it's not God's word teaching you things, it's you deciding what is and isn't good in God's word. And so we have to have a consistent way of dealing with these things in scripture. So uh, now framing that whole problem, 
uh, we can approach this psalm in particular, and we get back to verse 10, we're going to say, okay, now that we've looked at the context of the psalm, what's being argued here, and then we'll go back out in Scripture and see how Scripture actually speaks to this and solves this problem for us in a, in a fairly satisfactory kind of way. So let's look back at Psalm 5, looking again at verse 1. And the title of, of this study in Psalm 5 is, Thy Kingdom Come. Thy Kingdom Come. The psalmist starts off by petitioning the Lord and saying, Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, and in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. This psalm is framed not as a, a, a psalm of worship, as we've seen in other cases. It's framed as a psalm of prayer. The psalms are both hymns and poems and, and worship songs, but also prayers that the, de, the devout uh, believer would have written to God in, in petitioning him for, for mercy, uh, in, in celebrating his holiness. Uh, and in this case, uh, David is the author, and he's writing uh, that in the morning he goes to pray to the Lord, and he's, he's groaning from the, from the bottom of his heart, crying out to God. In verse 2, he says, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Now that's similar language we've, as we studied the Psalms, I've been trying to point this out. The psalmists are always praying to a specific deity. Prayer itself is not therapeutically helpful. Prayer to a one true God is helpful, but just prayer in general as kind of a mental state or a, a therapeutic solution is not helpful. All the psalmists frame their prayers to God. And here David does the same, my King and my God, to you do I pray. And he names him in verse one, O Yahweh, O Lord. And here he's saying that in the morning he comes and, and cries out to the Lord, even accompanying this prayer with, with sacrifice of a thanksgiving or petition or what we would say in the Old Testament is a wave offering, something that is not required because of sin, but is an is a offering that you do to God to show how much you are pleased with him and how much you need his, his help at this moment. And so that initial framing of, of petition, of asking, tells us the context of this psalm is probably one not of rejoicing, uh, but probably one uh, of deep heartache and trouble. And the psalmist is probably going to pray for a solution to this, this heartache and this trouble. So let's see how the psalmist continues his struggle. So he's going to get specific about what the problem is. It says in verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Then verse 6, You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Now, it seems strange that the psalmist is praying individually, it seems, at first. He's praying for the Lord to consider his groaning. And then when you look at verse 4, 5, and 6, his groaning turns out to be this general frustration about wickedness. This general uh, condemnation, if you will, of those who speak against God. And he uses very harsh language. He says, God does not delight in wickedness. And he could have stopped there, but he gets increasingly specific and almost uncomfortably specific for us. He says... You hate all evildoers, verse 5. And then verse 6, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Now, abhors is a, just a really strong way of saying hate again. And it, it's common for us uh, in, in modern Western Christianity to, to say language something like this. God uh, hates sin, but he, he loves sinners. And there's something true to that that's being communicated. But in this psalm, it, it doesn't, it, the psalmist does not say God hates the sin of the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. He says God hates the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. He says that he hates all evildoers, not just their, their sin. 
So that seems uncomfortably pressing. Why couldn't the psalmist just have stopped at verse 4 where he says, God does not delight in wickedness? That seems narrow enough. And many of us would have been much more comfortable with this text if he did stop, in fact, in verse 4 and not continue writing verse 5 and 6. And so, uh, rooted, again, in verse 5 and 6, is what is framed in verse 4. It's, deli- it's bringing out the character of God, showing us that God does not delight in wickedness. And that brings us to, remi- to remind us that God is a holy God. He does not delight in wickedness. He doesn't even dwell with wickedness. Not only that, not as, he's not just neutral in it. It's not that he just doesn't delight in it. He actually actively opposes it. He hates wickedness. And that's hard for us because when we look at wickedness, we might say we don't uh, agree with that. In our postmodern age, we are very tolerant of many different thoughts and beliefs. And while on, on the one hand, that's a very good thing. Uh, on the other hand, that makes us very, very neutral on a lot of things that uh, seem to be very straightforwardly true. And uh, we would not go quite as far as to say that we hate evildoers because uh, to us, maybe the evildoers are, are wicked in what they're doing and we can't delight in what they're doing, but we don't want to go quite as far as to say that we hate what they're doing. It seems very contradictory to the, the text of the New Testament, right? And uh, so we, we, on the one hand, are comfortable with what's being said and understand it, and on the other hand, we see that it's difficult uh, and frustrating. And you know, if someone was to read this to you and, and try to get you to explain it, uh, you might find yourself having a hard time trying to put this all together and still land with a, a loving and, and righteous God. And so the psalmist frames this, doesn't really see much of a problem with it. So again, we could say that that's his culture speaking. He's just a vindictive man. David is a warrior after all. He's a, he's a battle-hardened man. Uh, maybe this is just his particular language, and we could, uh, we could knock off the harsh parts of this by just chalking up to his vindictive spirit. But then notice the psalm pivots. It doesn't dwell there. It pivots right back. And then it, now it's talking about verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Those are things we like to hear in the psalms. I will bow down towards your holy temple in fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies and make your way straight before me. Now it's becoming clear that not only is the psalmist uh, articulating truth about God, that he doesn't enjoy wickedness, but the psalmist is also now articulating another truth about God, that we can delight in his, his steadfast, his covenantal, his, uh, his love towards his people. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple. And then he describes the Lord in verse 8 as being righteous. And he's asking the Lord to lead him in this righteousness. Now again, verse 7 and 8, we love, we love texts like that. And they seem to agree very nicely with what we, what we read in the New Testament. That the Lord would, would lead us and guide us, right? Uh, that seems very much like uh, Psalm 23, Lord, uh, where, he, where he leads us uh, peaceably by, beside still waters. And it seems that there's some truth being articulated here and there's other harder to deal with parts. And then notice how the earlier verses, verse 4, 5, and 6, are clarified by verse 7 and 8. Because verse 4, 5, and 6 are the general problem that the psalmist is articulating. Then in verse 7 and 8, it's a specific petition for the psalmist to be led not in the way of wickedness that the Lord does not delight in, but in the way of righteousness. And the Lord needs to lead him into this righteousness. And then he's going to pivot back and then focus back on the wicked and talk about how the Lord does not enjoy the wicked. And he's going to be very specific that verse 9, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave and they flatter with their tongue. Now, it becomes clear to us in verse 8 why he asked the Lord to lead him in righteousness and how that connects to the wicked being a reality because he's 
saying that he doesn't want to be deceived by the wicked person. He knows that the wicked don't speak truth, but he also knows that they flatter with their tongue, that they, they don't speak forthrightly about their wickedness. They're going to color it in. They're going to speak smooth things about their wickedness. We know that in the wisdom literature of Proverbs that the, the wicked adulterous woman is not someone who comes out on the face and says she's wicked. She actually is uh, one whose, whose speech is smooth like oil and sweet like honey. But in the end, that leads to destruction. The psalmist knows this about wickedness. So he asks the Lord to guide him away from wickedness, keep his path straight, and not allow him to fall prey to the, the vain deceits of the wicked person and their flattery and their, their essentially open grave throat the death that spews out of their mouth. And that takes us then to verse 10. So the psalmist, not only does he ask the Lord to guard him from wickedness, he's going to take that, uh, again, kind of an uncomfortably hard step forward and say, make them bear their guilt, O God, and let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgression, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. And again, Just like in verse 4, we would have been very comfortable for the psalmist to have stopped at verse 9 and simply not written verse 10. Because verse 10 is what's kind of bringing out the issue of the psalmist calling down judgment and wrath and uh, vindication on these people. He's not praying for their repentance. He's not praying for them to see the glory of God. He's simply uh, calling for their destruction. And so uh, now we have a problem. Because the psalmist is both articulating glorious truth and, for, from our vantage point, are also articulating uh, what seems to be very distorted truth. Truth that does not take into account uh, the cross of Christ in the New Testament. So how do we, how do we deal with, all, with that? Well, I, I proposed to you the, the three solutions earlier. We could throw the Old Testament out. We could uh, kick these psalms kind of as a lower canon of Scripture. We could begrudgingly uh, admit and then just kind of speed read through them and not really read them too much. Uh, There's another solution that's been proposed to this uh, by evangelical scholars. It's a very popular solution today. And this solution is essentially to say that this is all true in the Old Testament, but because we have the cross of Christ in the New Testament, that these psalms aren't prayed to the same effect as they were in the Old Testament. That while it was true for David to talk about his enemies in this kind of way, that because of the cross of Christ, God's wrath was perfectly done. It was dealt with on the cross. And so we shouldn't pray prayers like this because we have... Jesus as our model and our example. And that seems on the surface to be a a rather compelling solution. It deals with, we don't have to throw the Old Testament out. We don't have to say these Psalms are worth less. We just have to say, well, Jesus came and dealt with sin. And so we don't have to worry about this kind of prayer anymore. We could simply pray for conversion and for repentance. That would be true, except for the fact that the New Testament teaches us to pray in a similar kind of way as laid out here in these Psalms. So we'll look at a few texts like that. The first one is Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Revelation chapter 6 is talking about the the, uh, pain that the church is experiencing, the, the persecution that they're experiencing. And verse 9 and 10 uh, frame this in a particularly uh, harsh way. When 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 he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. 
And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, O holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's harsh language. They're not calling for the repentance of those who slain them. They're calling out for the judgment of those who slayed them. Seems strange, right? Because uh, we would say that, well, you know, we shouldn't pray prayers like the imprecatory psalms because when Jesus was being crucified, he prayed for the benefit of his enemies. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen, similarly, when he's being martyred, says, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, and, then, and yet here in Revelation, according to John, the, the martyrs, the slain of which Stephen would have numbered himself, now cry out for the justice of God to be done on those who, who martyred the saints. And it's not just Stephen. It's, it's all the saints who've ever been martyred throughout uh, the history of, of the covenant people of God, which includes uh, those in the old covenant who were, who were slain for, for prophesying true things about God, and they were martyred for what they, the message that they brought. So this uh, is not, uh, not good for the previous solution I proposed because the, this takes place well after the crucifixion. Imagine coming to John and saying, hey, John, you really shouldn't have written this because remember, Jesus died on the cross for sinners. You shouldn't have written this. Well, John uh, not only writes in light of the crucifixion, but his whole life is transformed because of the crucifixion. In fact, he's persecuted because of the crucifixion, because of the message that that brought. So I don't think we'd have to remind John as he's writing Revelation to, hey, John, be reminded of the cross. That should frame how you talk about people who are in rebellion against God. It'd be strange for us to morally elevate ourselves over John and say that he has now spoken out of turn. Very similarly to how Psalm 510 reads, uh, that, that God should simply uh, deal with the judgment right now. There's uh, many other texts that we could look at. Remember that Jesus uh, Christ curses on the Pharisees for, for leading people astray. Uh, Jesus actually in Mark 9 says it would be better for a millstone to be tied around someone's neck for them to be thrown in a lake than for them to lead any of the little ones astray. Same Jesus who told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So the problem gets magnified even closer because in the life of Jesus, he teaches us uh, similar things. But how, so how do we solve the, the painful problem of these imprecatory verses, imprecatory psalms? How do we deal with this? Well, the first reminder of any interpretation of scripture is that context is super important for understanding what these verses mean and, and what they have to do with us. So what is the context of Psalm 5? What is the context of Revelation 6? What is the context of these verses we've looked at? And again, I told you I'm not going to solve Psalm 137. I'm not going to solve uh, any of the other ones that we read. Just Psalm 5 for today. And then if the Lord tarries uh, next year, we'll take a look at some of these other ones as well and try to solve their problems as well. But in this psalm, you'll notice the language off the bat is the psalmist David praying to God and asking God to uh, essentially deal with his enemies, not David's enemies, with God's enemies. David prepares a sacrifice, prays to God, petitions him, and, and immediately frames his complaint or his petition in light of God not delighting in wickedness, God hating evildoers, and God abhorring those who commit evil acts, bloodthirsty and deceitful men. So he, he frames it not in light of his opponents, like he could have with Saul and many others, but he frames it in light of, in light of God's opponents. That's interesting for context because that's very similar to Revelation uh, 6 where the martyrs are not crying out for those who killed them. They're ultimately crying out for those who killed them because of the message they brought, which was God's message. God's message of vindication and redemption. 
And so both contexts remind us that these psalms are not prayed against individual vendettas or individual acts of vengeance. They are prayers of the people of God for God to do justice on the earth. And that's not very different from Jesus telling us in Matthew 6 to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Because we know when we get a picture of what his kingdom coming looks like in Revelation, that it comes with a sword, with judgment, with people getting cast into eternal judgment. And so if we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer with any kind of honesty about ourselves, we need to keep in mind that's not just smooth sayings of flowers and peace. Certainly there is flowers and peace on the other side of that, the lion and the lamb laying together. But there's also this honesty we have to have that there are people who are in rebellion against God, wicked and who despise God. And as the psalmist says here in chapter 5, verse 10, they've not rebelled against David. Look what he says, for they have rebelled against you. They have rebelled cosmically against their God. And it's because of this that the psalmist David here writes that they should bear their guilt. And that is a just theology of how guilt should be paid. If someone does not accept Yahweh as king, if they rebel against him, if they do not uh, want in any way, shape, or form to deal with him as their God, then they can reject him and push him away. And the sins that they have committed against him, because he in fact is God, can be dealt by them and them alone. As this teaching of the New Testament with Jesus. The Pharisees have woes heaped upon them because they ignore him who is their propitiation. They ignore the teaching of salvation. They ignore the repentance of John the Baptist. They ignore all of the teachings of the apostles after them. And they simply want their righteousness to stand against God. And so for someone like that, who is against God in every way, who has set their face against him, it is just for those who've rebelled against God to, to be punished for their rebellion. Now that is in contrast with the psalmist, David, who says that it is not his righteousness that stands against God. Verse 7, he says it is out of the abundance of God's steadfast love that he's able to enter his house. It is out of the abundance of God's covenantal love with his people that David is able to dwell in the presence of God. And so David's not insisting in this case that he is sinless. He's not insisting that he is uh, perfect in any way. He's simply insisting that it's not his righteousness, but God's faithfulness covenantally to him that will vindicate him at the end. And so, uh, at least in that light, we have a, a partial solution to this problem. These are not individual vendettas that David has against these people. These are uh, cosmic realities of justice and forgiveness. But the, then the question becomes uh, more acute, and we can ask, okay, maybe this is true, maybe this is just, but what about the solutions, right? We could say it's true and just, but maybe begrudgingly so, or we could rejoice in the fact that this is articulating who God is and what he is like. One of the things that is most difficult to do is to rejoice in the attributes of God that we least understand. We rejoice in the attributes of God that make sense to us in our culture. His love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his patience, his kindness. And we are quick to remind ourselves of verses that remind us to model those attributes of God. We are less quick to remind ourselves that Jesus models both forgiveness and uh, a zealousness for his father's house. 
that he is zealous for the truth of the te- for the holiness of the temple and for the truth of God's word to be proclaimed. And we think of zealot as a as a very wicked term, a term that we don't want to be associated with. But I would submit to you that that's largely because of how we exist in our culture, not because of what scripture informs us to believe. In the Western world, attributes of God that we like and align with our values are elevated by Christians, and those whom we are uncomfortable with, and those whom we don't understand as well, such as holiness, wrath, those characteristics of God are ones that we try to minimize and and push to the side. And here we have an example of divine justice being done, which we could look elsewhere in Revelation where actually the, the saints rejoice over the judgment of people and the smoke actually burning up forever and ever. And that seems so strange because to our minds, we, we can't make sense of that. But that's, I think, not because we know more than these authors did, but I think far, probably because we, are, we have less of the character of God in us than they did. When we come to the scripture and to the biblical authors, we're so quick to say that they are morally compromised without probably recognizing that we ourselves have a kind of bias when reading the text. We are, we are biased in almost every way. And if we're not careful, we can let that bias inform how we approach the text. And here, when we, when we come up to something uncomfortable in the text, we're quick to say, well, that is their bias showing through in the language. And not so quick to say, that is our bias showing through in our reading. When we look at God's justice, his holiness, his, his wrath against sin, we are uncomfortable with the picture of the cross. We are uncomfortable with the picture of him coming in judgment and, and vengefulness. We very rarely recite Revelation 19 and rejoice over the realities proclaimed there. We're far more likely to quote the Sermon on the Mount and the, uh, the contrite heart of God and, and his lowliness and his, his humility and the fact that he condescends when we should not be pitting his attributes against him. We should not be taking God's attributes and somehow weighing them and favoring some over others. Scripture speaks with an even-handed attitude about all the attributes of God. He's both loving and holy and perfect. And uh, some scholars and theologians speak of the simplicity of God, which has to deal with the fact that he's not these attributes in differing proportions and in differing amounts, but he's actually all of them simultaneously at the same time perfectly. He's simple. He's not wrathful sometimes and loving other times. He's always perfectly holy, always perfectly wrathful, always perfectly loving, always perfectly patient, always perfectly just. And we have a hard time understanding that, but that's not God's fault. It's our sin. It's our corrupt minds. It's our broken nature that calls the text and God into question when he reveals this about himself. And so then maybe another question comes up with with these verses here. If this is the, the text of the Psalter, if this is present in the Psalms, what do we do with Psalms like this? Well, wisdom would tell us we should probably not be uh, leading someone in a corporate prayer gathering with this in public. And I, I would think that there's a lot of wisdom to that because you want to be careful about how you articulate the truths of God and not wield them as, as hammers over people. So just because you know, for example, and you come away from this saying, I think the imprecatory Psalms are good and to rejoice in, does not mean that the next time you pray with someone before a meal that you should start off with an imprecatory prayer. Because these are truths that are delicate. These are truths that are glorious, but they need to be handled with with wisdom. And so, should we pray them? Absolutely we should. 
The imprecatory psalms are just as much instructive for us as the psalms of enthronement and glory. And uh, as I said, Jesus even instructs us to pray that his kingdom would come. And these imprecatory psalms are specific details about how the kingdom comes in justice and with people who are against God uh, dying outside of the kingdom. But notice uh, how even in Psalm 5, you see the balance in the prayer. He starts off with a personal petition, then proclaims God's general disdain for wickedness. Then he personally, once again, asks God to lead him into that righteousness. And then he says that he should, God should guard him from the wickedness and that God should uh, cast those who insist on their wickedness and die in their wickedness. He should cast them away from his holy presence. And then uh, verse 11 and 12, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice and let them sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now when David says that the Lord blesses the righteous, David is not saying that he is righteous and so God blesses him. The righteous one is simply one who acknowledges that God and God's favor alone is the only thing that determines salvation. It is, it is not David's personal righteousness that he's pitting against God's standard. But notice how he can, David can say in verse 11 that these people who take refuge in God and see God's judgment on the wickedness can, can rejoice and, and sing for joy because God resolves to protect his people. And so not only do I think that we should pray these psalms, uh, but then the, then the question uh, might be dialed in more specifically, okay, how and when and, and in what capacity. We should pray these psalms not against our own enemies, but against God's enemies. I think the context of Psalm 5 is clear. The context of these other imprecatory psalms is also clear, although we don't have time for those. That these psalms are always framed not against personal vendettas, but against God's enemies. And so when God has enemies on this earth, we should pray for their downfall because we pray for his kingdom to come. And so that does not mean that there are not specific examples of those who are at enmity with God and in rebellion against him. But I would submit to you that we should be slow to pray about such specific examples. When scripture speaks clearly and unashamedly about certain kinds of truth, then we should be less slow to not pray specifically. But I think in many cases, we might be tempted in one of two directions, to pray not, to not pray these Psalms at all, or to pray uh, too quickly, these psalms. Remember, we are not inspired authors of scripture. Paul can say in Galatians that those who do not preach the same gospel should be accursed, but that does not mean that we should go around accursing people ourselves as though we are apostles. So we can pray against God's enemies. We can pray against uh, particular examples of that would be uh, the evil world system that John tells us not to love. Uh, we could pray against our own sin and the sin that causes downfall and brokenness all across our nation, such as sins uh, of adultery, uh, sins of uh, fornication, uh, sins that rip families apart, such as divorce, sins that we seem to be very desensitized to. It might be good to start there because these are things that Paul tells us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against rulers and, and spiritual darkness that exists in the land. We can pray imprecatory prayers against sins that just widely sweep our nation. A specific example of that uh, would have been the time of the abolitionists where they prayed against the sin of slavery. 
And I don't think that they were too ashamed about praying that God would bring an end to slavery because of how wicked it was. And how they would rejoice in the day when slavery was in fact uh, undone from our nation's uh, uh, laws. And I don't think they were ashamed of these psalms when they were praying. I don't think we should be ashamed of sin when we pray against it. Now, all of that being said, we should pray again, just like the psalmist does here, in balance. One of the ways to do this is to just pray the psalms. If you start in Psalm chapter 1 and you prayed all the way through, just day after day, all the way to Psalm 150, you would have a perfectly balanced diet of prayer. Lament, rejoicing, mercy, justice, imprecatory psalms as well. They would be mixed in there. But again, they're not every other psalm. They're sometimes here, sometimes there. They're very widespread throughout the Psalter. And so we can pray in balance for these kinds of things. Which means when we, when we pray to God, we, we need to balance our prayer life and not balance it according to our standard or calibration, but balance it according to His. And the best we have access to with that is the Psalter, which are not only God's word to His people, but specifically words He gives us to pray back to Him. Unlike any other book of Scripture, the Psalms are, are words that, uh, that model God's heart for uh, His people and the heart that we should have when we commune with Him. There's other examples of prayer throughout Scripture, and you could certainly look for those, but uh, if you just want a very simple approach, the Psalms are that approach. And if you pray through the Psalms, you will bump into verses like this one that we've touched tonight. But again, it will be in balance with enthronement and worship and, and celebrating God's loving kindness. And we should remind ourselves when we think that these things stand at odds with one, odds with one another, that it is not Scripture which has somehow fallen short, and us who have uh, risen above Scripture. But it is, in fact, the opposite case, that we need to submit ourselves to uh, the pure Word of God and not be so quick to judge it in light of our current culture. And so putting, putting this all together, um, we might say that when Psalm 5, I, I told you the title of this is Thy Kingdom Come. If you look at Psalm 5, and you follow that overall pattern in context, You'll notice that these specific details of God doing justice and, and hating wickedness, these are all things that were done on the cross. And that because of the cross, we can be more informed about what it means for God to have steadfast love. That God has both hatred against sin and so much love for his people that he, with his very specific way, sealed his promise by bringing himself as the propitiation for sin and taking all of the wrath, all of the sin, all of the imprecation and curses on himself. It's the picture we get uh, from Moses that uh, Jesus is hung on the tree as a curse. John tells us this. That the Son of Man must be lifted up and cursed on the tree. And he does so because if he was not cursed on the tree, every single person would die in their sin, cursed in their sin, because that would be justice. But in light of the cross, we know that everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, will be vindicated, will be blessed. But that doesn't mean that there's not people who die without confessing the Lord, apart from his promise, who have rejected his offer of salvation. And for those, we should justly pray that when God comes in injustice and in holiness, we should, we should justly say with the psalmist here that it is just and right and glorious for God to show justice, because justice is not an attribute we're ashamed of. And scripture, and what scripture emphasizes, is never something we should be ashamed of. 
Now that not make that might not make sense to us this side of eternity, but I can promise you when you see Jesus coming in glory and in power and in perfect holiness, I promise it will make a lot more sense. Because when we see him, John says we will be like him. And that means we will be like him in our understanding, in our framing of these things, in how we even think about the attributes of God. We will be closer then when we see him than we are now. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't grow with where we are now. So if you've never prayed an imprecatory psalm, I encourage you maybe at some point in the next month to, to read one of these. Uh, maybe read Psalm 5. And think about specific sins that afflict our nation. Think about specific sins that affect uh, your life, the life of your family, the life of your friends. And pray against those things. And then balance that out with the wide prayer of psalms of rejoicing and glory and psalms that just talk about the beauty of God's scripture, of which there are just as many. And in all these things, we become more like Christ, more biblically informed people, and a body of believers that is more and more shaped by scripture and not standing in authority over scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Not only for the words that you have recorded for us in history past, but also for uh, Jesus Christ, who is the, the Word incarnate, who comes not only to uh, teach us once again your truth, but also to live out for us what it looks like to live in obedience and to be humble and to be zealous and in every way perfect. Lord, as we look at Christ and who he was, would you please give us by your grace, the ability to be conformed into his image. That we would become increasingly patient, increasingly loving, more and more shaped by your word so that we can be uh, made more and more holy and sanctified by your truth. Lord, when we bump into your word and we have tension with it, would you uh, give us grace, be patient with us, Help us, Lord, in our, in our slow state. And would you, by the power of your Spirit, keep us and hold us fast so that we may uh, rejoice with you one day when we are in perfect uh, abiding unity with you. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.